toward the end of that long, now famous night under the Bodhi tree. And after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially obstructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of aversion, desire, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama. The arrows that Mara hoped would stick and, of course, then distract Siddhartha from his clarity and strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, accompanied with the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here and how you are sitting? Just who do you think you are anyways? And the just about to be Buddha, the Bodhisattva, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a sense of investigation, exploration, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with a refreshing joy, balanced with the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama, sitting under the bow tree that very night, with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never ever again to return to the Buddha. And so we said, maybe not always quite like the Buddha. But we sit, we practice. We sit and we walk, practicing here in this retreat over these weeks, over these months. And all of you, all of us, have practiced and will practice in other places, at other times, 
alone, and with other beings. Our aspirations and determination are sometimes quite strong, quite clear, sometimes paling, probably sometimes even forgotten, and certainly many, many times remembered. As we do practice over the years, through this lifetime, the seven qualities or factors of mind, factors of mind and heart, that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated, unprompted, we could say, and at that amazing point in time, all perfectly in place, within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these qualities or positive factors of mind continue to grow, continue to deepen, mature, and be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep practicing. This evening, we'll touch into these qualities, or what are called the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation and discernment, energy, effort, joy, concentration, tranquility or calm, and equanimity. Each, all of these qualities, these factors, have been discussed in various ways and from various perspectives over these weeks and months. This evening I'd like to touch, touch in and explore with you from two particular, two related perspectives. That of our direct experience and our cultivation or prompting of these qualities through our own ongoing practice. As you've all been engaged over these last weeks and months. And from the perspective of the experience of their unfabricated, unfabricated, unprompted presence as aspects of the mind, the heart of non-clinging as aspects of the liberated mind, the liberated heart, the factors of enlightenment. One of the things that Saida Upandita said that has been a touch point and a really important reminder for me over the years, something I'd like to share with you. He said that most people think that everything begins here. And he would point to his head and tap his head. And then he would say, but I've been checking for a long, long time. And I found that everything begins here. And he'd touch his chest at the heart center and kind of thump himself on the chest. Everything begins here, he said. So I checked, checked around for a while. And it seems so. 
Krishnamurti uh, had another way of expressing it. He said, meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. This meditation can't be learned from another. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. As we touch into each of these qualities or factors of enlightenment, you might offer yourself the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or we could say a pointing out towards directly connecting with each one or maybe at least some of these qualities in yourself. Which from my own experience is facilitated by what we might call listening from the heart, not from the head. And I've also found that it's helpful to relax in the listening. Relax into the body, taking just a moment or two to really deeply relax from head to toe, dropping into the body with a bright attention and deeply relaxing in bright alertness at the same time. Letting the whole body, the mind, the heart, deeply relax into simply hearing. So beginning with the first factor, the first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. At its best, it's a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. Mindfulness doesn't think, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment we think, I'm doing this, we become self-conscious, we could say. We create or recreate the self. We're living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me. This factor, this quality of mindfulness is about living in the action living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourselves. In a sense, we lose ourselves in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to add anything, without taking away or needing to take anything away of the present, in, in the present moment's experience. Mindfulness connects. It connects firmly. It connects strongly with a constancy. 
It connects steadfastly, we could say, with the object, with what is. Establishing itself within some immediate aspect of our body-mind experience. Mindfulness is the mental factor by which we remember, or if we take that word apart, we remember. We really connect to things. We connect to our experience. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along on the surface of things. It touches deeply into the object, thoroughly aware of whatever it touches. And at the same time, it's not a fixed or sticky connection. It's a clear, fluid connection that lights on the object just long enough to know it. Mindfulness clearly comprehends whatever it connects with. In any given moment, it might be mindfulness, contemplation of the body, in the body. Mindfulness of our experience in the physical body the direct sensations of breath, of the posture, sitting, standing, lying down, or moving, or specific sensations in particular areas or parts of the body. In another moment, there could be mindfulness of the feeling tone of experience, the pleasant or the unpleasant or the neutral feeling tone, meaning the mental experience of, for instance, of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of any given physical sensation. Contemplation of the feelings in the feelings. Mindfulness connects directly with the consciousness or knowing the bare awareness aspect of our experience, which at times, and maybe quite often, may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors. For instance, we go into the marketplace. Taos, where I live, is a great place to window shop and especially for uh, one that tends towards the greed type, like myself. (laughs) Many beautiful things. Seeing, window shopping, seeing, just seeing. Shapes, colors, bare awareness, bare attention. And then the coloration of leaning into, of wanting, Greed, coloring the moment's experience of seeing, or the marketplace of our inner world of meditation, a moment of deep calm, a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No thought about it, 
just it as it is. Just tranquility, just calm. Maybe followed quickly by grasping, wanting it never to leave, for instance. Mindfulness then knows the mental factor or coloration of the mind of wanting, greed, within the greed itself. Or the mental factors, the colorations of hatred or anger or fear or delusion. Becoming known within themselves. Or the moments of consciousness, mindful experience colored by faith, by wisdom, understanding, or sleepiness, or distraction, etc. Each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, a breath, a sensation, a sound, a taste, and can be directly connected with, penetrated into, and known by mindful awareness. Even the fact that there is knowing, consciousness, in every moment, itself can be experienced directly by a mindfulness. In the Abhidhamma, the very detailed and precise treatise on Buddhist psychology, there are quite a number of different types of consciousness listed and described. Lists of many detailed ways that bare awareness of present moment experience is colored. It's really not necessary to um, differentiate and be able to name all of these. Most of us, or at least I can speak for myself, don't have that kind of mind or inclination of mind in this direction, the perception of such incredibly minute detail of experience. Some people do, and some of us don't. It's really quite enough for us to be aware of the more ordinary or usually experienced colorations of any given moment's experience. These colorations that are present through the mental factors that accompany consciousness. For example, mindfulness, knowing that there's sleepiness, that there's distractedness, fear, delight, Faith. And again, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging, no attitude of discriminating between right and wrong, good or bad. Within mindfulness itself, There's no grasping, no rejecting, no manipulation of experience. 
The last aspect of mindfulness that I want to explore a little bit this evening is what's called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas, which is mindful awareness grounded in the six sense doors, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. Mindful awareness grounded in the five hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, agitation, doubt, wanting mind, aversive mind. And mindful contemplation of dhammas grounded in the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness of dhammas in both the realm of the physical phenomena and the realm of mental phenomena. Dhamma, or the dhammas, in this case could be translated as the truth, the way of things, the natural laws. So from this perspective, all things, every single experience, every single phenomena, is Dhamma, or has the potential of revealing the Dhamma, the truth. Each and every, all of it, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the way of things, is within everything, simply there to be seen, to be known, if we just take the time to look. The truth is right here. It's right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body and mind, and within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as Within samsara is nirvana. Within the whirlpool of samsara, if we stand still, so to say, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, by ignoring no longer caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant and I like it or I don't like it. No longer caught in the continually moving around and around and around the wheel of dependent or codependent origination. Caught unaware in the whirl of one thing leading to another. In the midst of samsara, We can stop and pay attention, pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. Mindfulness of dhammas is the non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, radically receptive, relationship to all of our body-mind experience, whatever phenomena is present 
in our field of awareness. For instance, mindfulness of Dhamma sees what's known in relation to the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. The Dhamma of suffering or the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of any given experience. Mindfulness of dhammas knows the dhamma, the truth of the second noble truth, the cause of confusion, the cause of anguish, the cause of suffering in relation to our experience, our trying to grasp on, hold on to the passing show, so to say. The truth the Dhamma, of the cause of suffering. And mindfulness knows the Dhamma, the truth, of the third noble truth, the momentary or sustaining ending or elimination of suffering in relation to our life, here and now, in any given moment, the letting go, relinquishing, relinquishing the grasping, letting life simply live through us, as it quite naturally does. The Dhamma, the truth, of a momentary or sustaining end of confusion, anguish, the end of suffering. These knowings, can and do arise, actually, at any given moment of mindfulness. In any moment of what is sometimes called truth-discerning awareness. And then, lastly, with the factor of mindfulness of dhammas, seeing the way of the dhamma the way of life, as taught by the Buddha, the fourth noble truth, what's called the Eightfold Path, that has the potential to lead us to, or maybe more accurately to reveal to us, the ongoing possibility of the complete and final end of suffering. I sometimes uh, think of mindfulness as magic. I may have said this before, but I'll say it again. (laughs) I do sometimes think of mindfulness as magic, or it feels like that sometimes. It's not the magician's magic that creates illusion and then pulls us into the delusion of this illusion. The magic of mindfulness takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, without mindfulness, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And then caught in our reactivity to these assumed, not clearly seen appearances. And we suffer unnecessarily in this believed unreality. Krishnamurti said that if we don't know what it is, what meditation is, what mindfulness is, we're like a totally blind person 
in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. And from another perspective, this is a quote from Nan Shin that I really like a lot. By not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. So the first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. Our relationship to this quality of awareness as a factor of enlightenment is that we, we know, we know when, it, when mindfulness is present within us or when it's not present within us. And we'll move along now and touch into the next factors with a bit more brevity than we did with mindfulness, or we'd probably be here for a few more hours. (laughs) The next factor, the next factor of enlightenment being investigation or exploration, which I've actually somewhat included in the previous discussion of mindfulness. It's the activity, we could say, of mindfulness. It's the light of knowing, the activity of discernment, truth-discerning awareness, the lamp of understanding. Investigation penetrates, penetrates things right into their particular individual essence. It illuminates the object. We see the object of our mindfulness clearly. Investigation eliminates bewilderment. I'd like to share a personal experience with you, both as a metaphor and as a direct experience of this factor of investigation. Over the years, I've done a number of portraits of various people in clay, clay sculptures, portrait sculptures. So the person is sitting in front of me, and I see a face. I see a head. In order to create a likeness of this person in clay, there's a tremendous depth of mindful investigation that must take place. For instance, eyes. What's an eye? Taking a very deep and ongoing mindful look at the eye. This eye, not the me eye. (laughs) There's a shape. There are many shapes as we look carefully. The Each shape or part of a shape is in relation to another shape or part of another shape. So what happens in this process of a very 
deep mindful investigation as I'm doing a portrait is that what as a whole appears to be a face or what as a whole appears to be an eye breaks down. And I begin to see it in its infinite pieces, we could say, and in its infinite relationships. And as I see it, and the seeing goes through my body, so to say, into my hands, and comes out in the sculpture, an eye appears out of all of these infinite seen relationships. There's a breath. We experience one inhalation, one exhalation. We see a breath. Maybe it's particular qualities. Is it a long breath or a short breath? Smooth, rough, deep, shallow, light, heavy. We know directly when a breath comes we know directly when a breath goes, the birth and the death of a breath. We're not lost in the vast forests of forest of breaths. We see the trees, so to say. We see a breath just as it is. Investigation is our guide through the forest of phenomena. This is a poem that speaks of this. It's called Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree, a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So the second factor, investigation. When it's present in us, we know. The enlightenment factor of investigation of objects is present in me. And when it's not present within us, we know that it's not here. The third quality of mind or factor of enlightenment is energy, effort. They go together. The courageous effort in our practice. It's the mental effort, the energy, that's present in every single moment of mental activity. 
that's present in every single moment of mindful awareness. The Buddha's effortless effort that night under the bow tree means that there was just enough energy, not too much, not too little. Too much effort leads to too much energy, which manifests as restlessness. Too little effort leads to too little energy, which manifests as sleepiness, lethargy, sloth and torpor. It's a balancing act, we could say. Each of you, by this time, knows well energy, effort, is essentially necessary for our practice. It both supports and helps along the factors of of investigation and mindfulness. It's like tuning a guitar. Too tight, the strings break. Too loose, there's very little sound. Just right, and we can play. In the classical teachings, energies described as manifesting in meditators as non-sinking, non-collapsing. Energy and effortless effort is kind of a circular happening. We put forth energy, we make an effort in every posture in our practice. Sitting, standing, lying down, moving. We put forth energy. We make an effort in every moment that we mindfully connect with objects and investigation when we connect with investigation, in every moment that we explore our experience. Just the right amount. Just the right tuning, we could say. It's important to bring mindful attention to the quality of effort itself, itself, just as it's happening. To pay attention, to tune up, we could say, every now and then. Whenever there's just the right amount put forth, then this energy, this effort, creates more of itself. And we enter into the circle of sustaining energy, an effortless effort in our practice. There's no meditation practice. There's no fruit of practice without making an effort, without using energy. The Buddha tells us that when the enlightenment factor of effort, of energy, is present, one is to know the enlightenment factor of effort, of energy, is in me. When the enlightenment factor, when this enlightenment factor is absent, one is to know that the enlightenment factor of effort, of energy, is not in me. The fourth factor of enlightenment is joy, sometimes called rapture. 
we could call this joy a, a lightness of being, a refreshment and lightness of being. This refreshment circulates through our body, through our mind, like a river, like waves, softness, gentleness, smoothness, like light or tingling, maybe like a comfortable coolness or a feeling of floating or flying. We may feel fantastically comfortable and have no desire to get up. Instead, there's great interest in continuing to sit without moving for sometimes some hours. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks of his joy as being like spring, so warm that it makes the flowers bloom. With joy, we feel energetically lightened, agile. We feel well in the midst of whatever phenomena is presenting itself. We really, truly feel well in the midst of any given experience. We feel imbued with this refreshing lightness of being. There's a sense of a certain kind of transformation, a kind of healing, when the factor of joy is present in us. Our meditation practice is refreshed with a renewed and renewing energy and inspiration. As a factor of enlightenment, we know when joy is present in us and when it's absent. The fifth quality or factor of enlightenment is calm, tranquility. We feel composed, a smoothness, a quietness. We feel a gentleness, a stillness within our body and our mind. Without any special effort, the various disturbances of consciousness, the mental factors, are quieted. Mental and physical disturbances are cooled down, inactive in the moment of tranquility, in the moments of deep calm. There's very little, if any, discomfort. It's a place of what could be called the heart of easefulness in our practice. As a factor of enlightenment, we know when calm, when tranquility is within us. We know when it's absent from us. The sixth factor of enlightenment is concentration. The mind, the heart of non-distraction, non-dispersion. Concentration, the focusing power of mind, of heart. Concentration gathers in 
It gathers back, we could say. It reigns in the scattered and wandering energies of mind. It's the capacity of heart, of mind, to stay with and to sink into the object. Just deep enough, just long enough, as it's appropriate in order to see clearly. Ajahn Chah, the Thai meditation master, talked about concentration as being like turning on the switch in order to see clearly the mindfulness aspect. Turning on the switch in order to see clearly with wisdom being the resulting light. He spoke about concentration being the empty bowl Mindfulness, the food that fills it, making the meal of wisdom. This is from Yanagi, a Japanese Zen philosopher who wrote the book The Way of Tea. He said, They saw. Before all else, they saw. They were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. The focused mind, the concentrated mind, it's a peaceful mind. As this cohesive capacity or factor deepens, as it develops, as it matures, one experiences more calm, more tranquility, more refreshing joy. As a factor of enlightenment, again, one knows very directly, very clearly, the enlightenment factor of concentration is in me. (laughs) Or if it's absent, one knows it's absent. So touching into the first six factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, energy, effort, joy, and concentration. Each of these qualities are present to varying degrees and at various, various times throughout our practice we come to know them intimately over time. We cultivate them. They organically develop, grow, and mature over time. They're perfectly natural aspects of our practice of mindful awareness. The last and seventh factor of enlightenment or quality of enlightenment is equanimity. And has already been mentioned and is often spoke about equanimity could be likened to a mountain. The immovable mountain of the about-to-be Buddha that night under the bow tree, 
in Taos where I live, we have a sacred mountain, or actually the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians in Taos, includes this sacred mountain. And I think that most of the people in Taos, in some way, this mountain is a sacred symbol for most of us. And I have the very good fortune uh, being able to look out at it and take it in in every season, any day, as it's quite clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, or any mountain at all, it just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain rains on it, hail falls on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unwavering, unshakable, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of equanimity. It itself is a live energy in itself. It appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. This is one of the, another one of the Buddha's teachings that he gave to his son Rahula. He said to Rahula, Develop a state of mind like the earth, Rahula. For on the earth, people throw clean and unclean things, dung and urine, spittle, pus and blood, and the earth is not troubled or repelled or disgusted. And as you grow like the earth, no contacts with pleasant or unpleasant will lay hold of your mind or stick to it. Similarly, you should develop a state of mind like water, For people throw all manner of clean and unclean things into the water, and it's not troubled or repelled or disgusted. And similarly with fire, which burns all things clean and unclean, and with air, which blows upon them all, and with space, which is nowhere established. Develop the state of mind of friendliness, Rahula, for as you do so, ill will will grow less, and of compassion, for thus vexation will grow less, and of joy, for thus aversion will grow less, and of equanimity, for thus repugnance will grow less. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on to. It's not attached to. It Let's live life, live through itself. And I wanted to just read a little bit of a poem that I already read, just the very end of it. This is the poem.
poem Hokusai says by Roger Keyes. Just a small piece, a good reminder. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. The enlightenment factor of equanimity isn't indifference. Indifference may masquerade as equanimity for us at times, but actually indifference is a separation. Indifference is a subtle pulling away. Indifference is an aspect of aversion. Indifference creates a duality of you and me, of me and them, of me and it. Connection is severed with indifference. Life doesn't live through us if we're indifferent. Equanimity is the fearlessness and the power of the mind and heart to experience all kinds of change, every kind of change in the realm of form and feelings, in the sometimes startling experiences and changes in the spheres of the six sense doors and states of mind, all of the vicissitudes of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, and yet remain centered, remain unshaken, unmoved. This unshakability, this balance of being has been called the heart of greatness. There's an amazing practice that's sometimes done by particular groups of Hopi Indians. It's a kind of equanimity practice a practice of the heart of greatness. And I'd like to read you a a piece of that. This is from the book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. And I want to say that I'm definitely not recommending this practice. It's really a metaphor. Uh, We can understand it as a metaphor. There were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes. About 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept on singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll on the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed legs, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one 
upon whose body they chose to rest. That's the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. Until equanimity is truly matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. And one of the interesting things to me about equanimity is that equanimity itself is the growing spaciousness of heart that includes losing our balance in any of the realms of experience in this constantly changing life. A number of years ago, I sat the last six weeks of the three-month retreat, and I practiced, for about a month I practiced metta, and then for the last two weeks I did the equanimity practice. And I was feeling quite a deep sense of balance, uh, a sense of evenness, of heart, of mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep, abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) If this was a Zen practice session, any good Zen teacher would do something quite startling, creatively startling, to test my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just dissolved, disappeared. But later that day, I was startled in what we could say true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note. (laughs) (laughs) The note was signed by one of my teachers, but actually it was from all of the three-month teachers. And it said... We'd like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, for a moment, equanimity totally flew out the window. In fact, my heart felt like it stopped. And the thought was, I can't. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and talk tomorrow. It's impossible. I've been sitting for six weeks, totally silent, deeply into practice. I can't. It really felt like an impossibility for a few moments. And then the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test. (laughs) Of course, this is it. And I can do it. I want to do it. I began to feel a tremendous gratitude for the teachers, a tremendous gratitude and appreciation for the IMS staff. And suddenly, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. And so I did it. There's a prayer that I like a lot. It's actually, I think, called the equanimity equanimity prayer. Please grant me the serenity to accept the things 
I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so we practice. We prompt the quality of equanimity directly as one of the divine abidings and the instructions will for that that divine abiding will be coming up this coming week. We remind ourselves over and over and over again that things are as they are. That each of us are the heirs to our own karma and that our happiness or our suffering depends upon our actions, not upon our wishes. We remind ourselves to accept things as they are and to be undisturbed by the changes, the comings and the goings of experience, the beginnings and the endings of events, the arising and passing of life itself. We practice Vipassana again and again and again. We see how it is. And slowly this heart of greatness grows and develops and matures. The wisdom of equanimity begins to live through us more and more often, unprompted. When the enlightenment factor of equanimity is present, we know. The enlightenment factor of equanimity is present in me. When it's absent, we know. The enlightenment factor of equanimity is not in me. Each of these seven factors, mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, concentration, tranquility or calm and equanimity are their own strands, each with their own particular qualities, with each strand being intrinsically interrelated and reflective of every other strand. In any moment, each and all of these threads can arise and weave together within the boundlessness, within the clear light and spaciousness of mindful awareness. In any moment, the tapestry of each and all of the factors of enlightenment just are. They just are, unprompted, unfabricated. They just simply and naturally are. When in our practice, In our life, we experience moments of freedom, moments of freedom from suffering. These factors of enlightenment just simply and naturally are in a moment of pure presence, in the isness of life, the perfectly natural moments of purely, directly, and simply being not clinging to anything, just simply, purely, directly being. There's a story of an old Chinese Zen monk who after many, many years of 
peaceful, easeful practice, realized that he wasn't really quite yet enlightened. So he decided to go up to the top of the mountain and find a hut and stay there and practice until he truly, totally reached his goal. On the way up, the old monk met an old man. The old man was walking down the mountain as the monk was walking up the mountain. The old man was carrying a great big bundle. The old man asked the monk, Where are you going, monk? And the monk answered, I'm going to the top of the mountain and sit until I either get enlightened or die. Well, since the old man looked quite wise, the monk asked him, Hey, say, old man, do you know anything about this enlightenment anyway? The old man, who actually was the bodhisattva of wisdom, Manjusri, who it said appears to people in disguise when they're ready for enlightenment, the old man looked at the monk and just simply let go of his bundle, dropped it to the ground. And of course, in a good Zen story style, the monk was instantly enlightened in that very moment. And he said, you mean it's just that simple? You just let go? Not grasp anything? The monk then turned around and looked back at the old man and said, So what now, old man? The old man answered by reaching down, picking up his bundle again, and walking down the mountain towards town. In not true Zen style, I want to say the Eightfold Path. I'd like to close with a, a quote um, from an astronaut, Russell Swikert. This is from a book called Home Planet, which I, I'm not sure is um, no longer, is any published, still published. There are quotes from international astronauts about their experience out there. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for man. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there 
And they're like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You're up here, the sensing element. That point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship to this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.